I'm Kate Daniels. We have the multi-award-winning author Eddie Chikolate with us to share some insights into his latest book, This Indian Kid, a Native American Memoir. Eddie Chikolate, good morning, and thank you so greatly for being with us today. Good morning, Kate. Thanks for having me. I am so grateful because I feel this book, This Indian Kid, a Native American memoir, is just so timely and so important for our youth because it is written more toward that genre, but really it's for anyone of all ages. I, as a more mature adult, have really enjoyed reading of your experience. So did you feel that as you wrote it, that it could be just for anyone and everyone? Yes, I did. You know, there's some stuff in there that I think maybe uh, that Adrian really wouldn't understand when I make references to Watergate or uh, how publishing works in a newspaper, stuff like that. But those things are sandwiched around a uh, juvenile story. So I thought by doing that, uh, readers of all ages, like you said, would, would, would be interested. And I've had some people tell me uh, they were halfway through and didn't realize it was a young adult memoir. So that attests to the fact, then, that it is a book, an important piece of literature for any of us, because, well, in writing it, Eddie, did you feel that you were going to help us get some good insights, actually teaching us to be more conscious of Native American history, more contemporary because of, you know, growing up in the 70s and you're talking about growing up in Oklahoma, that it was going to give us insights that we are so ignorant of. Yes, I think that uh, just by showing, you know, one Native American kid or this Indian kid alike in, say, like Middle America, that uh, these are kids that play Little League baseball, doing uh, Cub Scouts, Pinewood Derby, Fourth of July, it's pretty average, typical American, everyday stuff, rather than the setting being a reservation town or uh, whatever other preconceived notions the reader might have. Like, wow, I didn't know uh, Indians just live in regular towns, uh, which is the case in Oklahoma. They're reservations, or it's Indian land, but it's not something like you'd see in uh, North Dakota or uh, Montana or Wyoming, places like that. It's, it's more of the natives or the original landowners, but it's a complicated system in Oklahoma for legal jurisdictions and stuff like that, but pretty much a middle America setting, you know. Right. And even you were mentioning reservations in Montana, North Dakota, and here in Washington State, too, that is very much the case. Not to say that there aren't a lot of Native people that live just in communities, but this was different in Oklahoma, where, as you say, the people lived in just the towns really all mixed. Right. Most of them uh, in the uh, Native American communities, at least uh, where I was from in Muskogee, it was uh, real uh, racially diverse. Unlike some towns in Oklahoma or some towns in America, but Muskogee is and still is to this day. A very diverse town. Yes. Um, there are neighboring towns, you know, within 15, 20 miles, 30 miles that, that aren't. Have you spent much time visiting back in Muskogee? I haven't in a few years since I moved to uh, Minnesota. My mom's still there, uh, cousin, sister. Most of my family's still in Oklahoma, uh, uh, either around Tulsa or Muskogee. And your really good childhood friend, Lonnie, does he still live in that area? Yes, he's still in Muskogee. 
He's only uh, a mile or two from the uh, his, his family house, which is still there on North 17th Street. And he was uh, important in your childhood, being, of course, your best friend. That says a lot. Uh, but it also speaks to uh, to the diversity that existed and, and was natural. Right. Uh, growing up in that town, we didn't, you know, I was telling people, uh, as far as kids are concerned, uh, I don't think you really get to start hearing the racial feedback and overtones until maybe you get up into junior high and high school. But growing up as a young kid, you don't think, well, I'm not going to hang out with him because he's black or vice versa, you know. So I'm glad that I grew up, uh, I'm, you know, from the book, you can tell I moved all over, but I'm glad that my main uh, main hometown that I always fell back on was Muskogee. And it was important, uh, family, extended family was such an important thing because you grew up, uh, a lot of your growing up years was with your grandmother, but uh, it just kind of felt like it just flowed back and forth. There was, I didn't feel there was a feeling of trauma, but am I wrong? No, you're right. You know, as I was writing this book, maybe about halfway through and I showed my agent, I was getting worried that. Well, there's no, uh, you know, a traumatic scene yet, mm. or everything was just fine, you know, like fishing and playing out in the fields and stuff. And my agent said, don't worry, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be, uh, you know, trauma-based. But what I found out was uh, any trauma that I had growing up, because I had a, you know, a family that cared about me, that's the first step. But uh, any trauma that I had, I, I brought on myself, actually. The Van Rim incident, mainly. Do you want to talk about that? Some, or do we want to talk more about how you were so much into sports, or both? Uh, we could do the band running for a little bit it, without giving a lot of way. Me and my uh, best friend there in that town, Tishomingo, we uh, had a situation where we were two of the top kids in school as far as English and grades and never missed a day on a roll and stuff like that. And we wound up uh, committing an act of vandalism that got us both expelled, not suspended, not, you know, you're out for a couple of weeks and you're done here. And this was just after I had finally settled in. You know, I'd been there a couple of years and didn't look like we were going to move again on the horizon. Had a decent house in the Chickasaw Nation Housing Authority. And then, I, you know, I brought that on myself. So there I go. I had to move again. Even though I didn't, we didn't move houses, I had to move schools. I had to go to a different school like 15 miles down the road. But sports, yeah, sports has been a constant in my life. In fact, um, moving to that new school... I got to play baseball again because Kissimingo uh, didn't have, uh, I don't even think they had a high school team then. And the only way I could play baseball was moving back to Muskogee in the summer because they didn't have a little league either. It was like baseball, not a big deal. But to that, like that uh, smaller school, they had fall and spring baseball, and I got to start playing right away. And so it's so interesting how the two blended sports being you know so key in your life but also from a very young age and this ties in of course to writing this book your memoir how writing telling stories or writing stories was really such an important part of your life right yeah when i lived with my grandparents in rural muskogee no it wasn't totally remote because town was like a mile or two away but in our setting we were just this one house up on a hill with pastors and ponds and stuff around us. And uh, my grandma would take me to the library on a weekend, about a Saturday, to drop me off and pick me up when it closed. So I always had stacks of books around from the library. Mm -hmm. 
and also from, you know, the weekly reader ordering books and stuff like that. But my main source of books was the library from a young age. And uh, I don't know what prompted me to do this. I just sat down one day when I was about six and wrote out a story on a notebook paper about the uh, character on the Mountain Dew bottle, the old hillbilly, as they call him. I wrote that he ran away from home. The family noticed he was missing and uh, put out a search party. They found him hiding in a tree, and uh, they saved him, and everybody lived happy, happily ever after. Uh, my grandma saved that story, so I don't know what prompted me to do that. It wasn't like a, a class assignment or anything like that. I just started writing one day, let my imagination take off, I guess. And I found that to be so wonderful that there was, you know, that spark of what would be the future you that was already kind of, you know, uh, burbling within you and, you know, just directing you, whatever it was, to to write and you did it and your grandmother obviously found value in it, but how that was already kind of beginning your path uh, toward what you would do with your life. Yeah, uh, thinking back on it, which, which you're forced to do if you're writing a memoir, uh, thinking back on it, you know, here I was, I even wrote a play. Now, where I got that idea was the shredded up newspapers for snow and had my sister slap me, which she did enthusiastically, <laughs> by the way. Uh, but I, I never, even with that going on, I never, growing up, I never said, okay, here's, I want to be a writer, uh, an author. That, it just kind of fell in my lap because uh, when I uh, played baseball, well, before that, we were at uh, a homestead in Hannah, Oklahoma, a place where a lot of relatives used to gather on holidays. And I was probably in the fourth or fifth grade, and I was reading the sports section, talking about stats and home runs and who plays who, who's in first, who's going to win the World Series this year. I was always reading the paper. My uncle, who was a football coach, Buster Narcomy coached at Riverside High School in Anadarko, Native American school. And uh, he saw me uh, read the paper and talk about sports. I go, that boy, he's probably going to be a sports writer someday. And that was prophetic because uh, when I got to high school and joined the baseball team, our coach, Bob Brand, was a former Tulsa World sports writer. It's a journalism degree. He taught journalism at Muskogee High School. And he had me and a friend of mine take his class. I don't know why. He just told us that you and you are going to be in my journalism class. It wasn't, uh, do you want to be in my journalism class? It's, be there Monday at eight, you know, and uh, he saw he, he saw that I had a knack for newspaper work, like uh, writing lead paragraphs was the main, the first thing, and uh, the first one I turned in was like perfect. He goes, "Who wrote this?" Had it up, and I raised my hand. You get an A for the semester. So then, uh, from there, he, he turned me over to the local uh, newspaper with the Muskogee Daily Phoenix, which was a Gannett paper, uh, seven days a week AM paper, and. That's how I started uh, sports writing in high school. And it really did become a major career for you uh, that you were excellent with. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I just kind of, that's another one I just kind of stumbled into with, uh, you know, the coach helping me. It wasn't like I set out to be, I've got a goal, I want to be a sports writer. It was just that he referred me to the local paper because they needed help, and uh, I fit right in, and it just took off from there, and it, similarly with college, I never even thought about, thought of, never thought about not going to college. It, was, it wasn't this big deal where oh, I'm struggling with a decision. You know, if you're in, uh, which I, another thing I try to get across in the book to kids is, uh, you know, obviously stay in school, 
but you know, trying to join some type of club, whatever it might be, sports or uh, FFA or FHA or Latin club, anything to get you around more like-minded people. Because everyone I was around with in journalism and baseball, most of them were, you know, making college choices. So uh, to me, it wasn't a big struggle. I'm not going to college or not. I just knew I was. There's a part of it that is kind of has the feeling of uh, destiny or fate around it, although I like to think more of it's something that we potentially are born with and we just begin to recognize and doors open for us to enter or we could not enter them. But you were entering these doors as they opened just naturally, you know, following kind of that that inner voice without necessarily hearing a voice, but it's something that was drawing you into who you are. Yes, and I consider myself uh, lucky, you know, for that aspect that uh, I was able to sort of just fall into something that I was good at at such a young age. Uh, when I got my first full-time job, they know you have a column that they run your picture with it, and uh, people were saying, and you look like you're like 15 or something. And, <laughs> well, I wasn't too far off. I was only uh, 19 or 20 when I got my first full-time job. So, yes, all of that unfolding for you. And uh, th- that's where writing this memoir is really an inspiration for all of us, and particularly for youth who, and is at this time when things are so, so challenging for um, a multitude of reasons, I think, but for kids to read that, and the 70s aren't that long ago, where you went through this and look at who you are. Uh, you've done a reading at some or done some readings with schools. Have you had that feedback from kids at all? Yeah, then they asked me, "How did you get started, and how old do you have to be to do that?" And and I just tell them that uh, you know if you if you stay in school and that's where you're going to get uh, doors open to you. You know, like, for instance, me, you know, joining baseball. If I had played baseball, the coach didn't know me from Adam up until my senior year when I went out for baseball. When he had, then he had me take journalism. But if I hadn't went out for baseball, who knows what would happen? I mean, I might have became a, a Wall Street wizard or something, or a butcher. <laughs> who knows? Well, I suppose that's true. That could have happened too. Uh, you could have followed a different path. But then again, wasn't baseball then kind of this uh, passion within you? Even if it wasn't burning, there was still something about it that kept pulling you. And and I, I wonder about that as being something that draws us to what our our life and uh, our work on this earth is supposed to be. True. You never had it kind of works in mysterious ways, but baseball, you know, I played it every year growing up and I lived and breathed it, you know, with uh, collecting baseball cards, cans, and uh, listening to games on the radio, going to games in person, and all this when I'm like 12, you know. So just baseball crazy. The sports in general, but especially baseball. And you were supported in that. Your family encouraged you to do it. Your, you talk about your grandmother buying you the, the baseball shoes with the cleats. I, I wasn't quite sure why melting the cleats was important. Well, I mean, if, uh, if they weren't melted down, the people who don't know what we're talking about, I used to put my, wearing my cleats, I'd stick them on the side of our wood stove because it was real hot and it would, they would melt down. And when the baseball season came, I'd tell my granny, Look, I need new shoes because the cleats are worn down. 
<laughs> so that otherwise, okay. they, yeah, otherwise they would just say, hey, those are perfectly fine. and wear those another year. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Great. A great mind there, you know, <laughs> figuring things out. But she did it. She really supported you in doing this. I mean, playing baseball. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, they uh, took me to all the practices and went to all the games and stuff like that. You know, when it gets up into high school, you know, a lot of times parents can't go because work and the high school games are far flung all over the state. But growing up, yeah, they were, there, they were always there. Not just games, but practices. And you have to have someone to take you, unless you've got a coach picking you up. And that was there. You had support from the family, extended family, which sadly doesn't necessarily exist as much these days. But sometimes extended family can be friends that become really family. Oh, yeah. Uh, even to this day, uh, especially among natives in Oklahoma, like they have big extended families. You know, you might grow up with an uncle or an aunt. Uh, they might have taken you in uh, to get you through school. Or in my case, I became good friends with some uh, other Creek Indians in high school, the Tigers, they were an art family. Their dad was Jerome Tiger and their uncle was Johnny Tiger. And I, I became like a uh, family member there. I moved in. And also other families throughout my life have kind of taken me in, like the Barnett's Creek family in uh, Mulgee, Oklahoma, that area. Some Cheyenne families, the Black Owls and El Reno, uh, treat me like family. In fact, they say I'm adopted Cheyenne. So it was just really such great connections that you had and not feeling that you needed to have something different or that others had something better. It feels wholesome what you lived with. Yeah, you know, you don't really realize it until you went through it. But they say we didn't go to fancy restaurants or anything like that, but we had fresh fish to eat, a whole garden full of vegetables. Now, you know, I'd kill for that to have uh, access to fresh vegetables like that all the time. It's so easy. I, I can relate to that, having a, grown up with a big garden, how we take for granted or just even discount what we have until the time has passed and we look back and realize what gifts we had. So that's something for us to realize is just to enjoy what we have and, and appreciate it in the moment. Right. Right. That, you know, was a much simpler time as far as, uh, I think that's what got me reading a lot, because there, uh, we had a TV, a simple black and white, that only got four stations, and half the time, you know, uh, I, I wasn't going to sit around with soap operas as a, you know, like a 12-year-old, you know, because that's all it's on during the day. I watched, having of watching the news, weather, and sports, because that was something to watch, but I think I was driven more to reading and writing during that time, other than, you know, today, you can uh, watch at your fingertips, anything you virtually want to, that, you know, immediately. Mm-hmm. You could, kids will never get up off the couch, you know, unless you force them to now. But I was in a good situation where I lived out in the country. I could just walk outside and be in a pasture. And, and created your own entertainment. Yeah, through books and writing. Record player. Oh, yes, the old-time record player. Right. And playing music and on the bus? Uh, yeah, they would. Uh, I don't think they were supposed to, but especially as loud as they did on the bus I went home on. The driver had to stop one time and uh, tell us to keep the noise down. So it was really a wonderful childhood, given all the ch- the challenges, but you didn't think of them necessarily as being 
challenges that that held you back because you followed these doors opening for you, your writing career, sports column that led to Stanford. Tell us about how that evolved for you. That evolved when I was getting kind of burnt out on writing sports because I'd started when I was 16. And then 10 years later, I'm still doing it. And uh, a friend had told me about this art school in Santa Fe for Native Americans called the Institute of American Indian Art. And I decided to quit the sports writing job I had at the time and just go to New Mexico and see where that would take me. But I wasn't there for a few weeks, and I saw an ad on a bulletin board for the uh, Albuquerque Journal North newspaper in Santa Fe was looking for a uh, sports correspondent. So I tore the ad down and uh, applied and started writing sports, you know, uh, less than a month after I, I vowed to quit. <laughs> I just couldn't keep away from it. But anyway, I went to the school, so I was doing uh, sports on the side, writing sports. I was in the library one day, and I overheard a kid talking about, he wasn't even talking to me, he was talking to someone else. He goes, man, I think I'm going to get in that Stegner program at Stanford this year. I'm on the long list. And he was talking about it, and I waited till he was through, and I approached him later on in the library. I said, yeah, I heard you talking about some program at Stanford. What's that all about? And he told me it's a two-year fellowship where uh, poets and fiction writers can uh, concentrate on their craft and meet in workshops. And it's not a degree program, but it's a highly thought after uh, two years to write. So based on what he was telling me, I looked into it. This was over Christmas break. I got my portfolio together. I think it's about 30 pages. Sent it in, forgot about it. That was in December. And then on April Fool's Day, I got a call. I was in Denver on spring break, and I got a call from someone at school in Santa Fe that Stanford University is looking to talk to you. And at first, I thought it was an April Fool's joke because it was April 1. <laughs> and uh, that's how I got that. I got in, and the kid, I don't think, has ever forgiven me. You know, he'd been trying <laughs> for years to get in, and uh, I didn't even know about it, and I got in on the first try. <laughs> See, Eddie, that's the way your life feels as you just take it in stride, but reading about these experiences, there's just this kind of special touch to it that, you know, you're just doing what you're meant to do. And, you know, it just all really turns up uh, so wonderfully. Not that there aren't challenges, but still, you're just doing your life's work. Yeah, thanks. Uh, some of those stories, well, the stories that got me into the program, I know I, I, were all written as a student there in Santa Fe, and if I, you know, if I hadn't made that leap to uh, get out of sports writing for a while, that would have never happened because mm. I would have never went to the art school in the first place. And uh, well, I also took creative writing at the Institute of American Indian Art because I wanted to be involved with writing somehow. Since I quit the newspaper job, even though I did get the uh, correspondence position for the uh, Journal North, but I was also in creative writing. And I, a teacher of mine, John Davis, a poet. He, was, he read the first story I turned in. He goes, uh, he asked, talked to me after class and said, what's your major again here? I said, museum studies. He goes, that's when he started working on me to change it to creative writing, and I did. And I had, they had a great staff. It was just a two-year school at the time that they had published authors galore there, more than any four-year school at the time. You know, uh, at four-year schools, you know, you have a big faculty, and they always say publish or perish. But in our school, we had more people publishing than some state universities. And if it's just a two-year school, you know, if I ever wanted to consider being a fiction writer, that was the uh, best place I could have wound up at. But I didn't even know that. So when I left, I was going to do the museum study. That is just so amazing. It's fabulous. <laughs> so so here I wound, I wound up in San Francisco 
And uh, a few years before that, I had never even been outside of Oklahoma. So you can imagine what kind of uh, culture shock that was. Oh, yes. Going to San Francisco, even from, you know, Santa Fe. A big leap. Big leap. Yeah, I loved it. I loved it there. That is so tremendously wonderful. And so you had that experience, and I'm sure it was totally invaluable, wasn't it? Yeah, so on all fronts, just a part of uh, opening your eyes to uh, other things that exist outside of, you know, your hometown or your home state. And although, you know, the, the writers and teachers that I met at Stanford, and not just at Stanford, but in San Francisco, I lived next to uh, two or three blocks from major bookstores where authors would be coming in on a regular basis. And I lived right next to the theater district. I used to go to plays in previews, and the uh, only cost was a, a can of vegetables or whatever you can afford for the uh, Feed the Needy Drive or something like that, they would have these, you could get into the previews just by bringing cans of food. I did that a lot. So, you know, I started watching plays and going to readings and going to Stanford twice a week. It was pretty amazing. A real education on its own. That on its own. It's the first time I really saw homeless people. Like, not just one or two, but, you know, uh, thousands. I guess you would even say, uh, that, yeah walking down an alley, and I thought it was just a pile of newspapers, but it was like someone sleeping under papers. They woke up and kind of scared me to death. Like, whoa, what's going on here? That's something you wouldn't see in Muskogee, you know. Right. So here we're talking about middle America, really a poor area of the country, and yet you didn't see that on your streets. No. uh, That part of the country, uh, it's called green country in Oklahoma, and it's full of farms and food and... uh, agriculture and stuff like that. So I never really thought of Muskogee, at least, as being poor. So much in what our perception is, isn't it? Right. So let's come back to this wonderful book, This Indian Kid, A Native American Memoir. In writing it, and Scholastic is the publisher, which is perfect because it really gets it into the hands of kids. And there's so much in here, as we've already just touched on, that I feel can be encouraging and inspiring to kids, but to adults, too, who, you know, might be kind of floundering. And uh, we can experience how you make changes and how, you know, it leads you to something different and great and wonderful on its own. Did you think about that as you wrote This Indian Kid? Yes, I did. I was thinking that, you know, looking back on it, you know, it might not come off well to people, but I would encourage Kids, uh, kids, I'm meaning uh, after high school when you're still a kid, maybe 17, 18, is to leave your hometown, whether it's to go to school or or whatever, uh, just leaving your hometown, which is not going anywhere. It's going to be there when you get back. I think it just opens up a lot more opportunities. And I was glad that I actually moved around a lot when I was a kid. I went to 14 different schools before high school. Now, even though they were all in Oklahoma, they're still moving around everywhere. And it kind of got me prepared to, uh, you know, adapt more readily to the new situation. You know, after a while, I didn't dread, you know, here I'm a new kid in school. It's like, okay, so what? That's an eighth or ninth time, big deal, you know. Yes. So here, some people might regard that, oh, that's a hardship. But no, it was really a great growth experience for you. Yeah, I, I guess it taught me to, like I said, just kind of roll with the punches to deal with whatever life's going to hand you. You know, I still had my family everywhere we went. It wasn't like I was on my own or just dumped off in a new town. I always had my family, including, you know, my grandparents were always uh, sort of a 
bedrock that I could always fall back on because they usually stayed in the same town. I could always rely. I could always go back to them, which I did a lot. And I think that says a lot, too. And what we probably miss so much in our world now is being so disconnected from the extended family. We're all, you know, we've moved around so much, but we're just either a single parent family with kids or dual parents, but still, you know, not with surrounding families. So your life was rich with that. Right. I believe, you know, being a uh, member of the tribe, you're always going to have some sort of extended family. Mm. Like uh, even here, I, I moved to Minneapolis four years ago. And uh, some of the first people I met were two Creek Indians from Oklahoma. Sheila Bear and Brian Yehoa up here in Minneapolis. We became friends. We know several of the same people back in Oklahoma. So it's like there was good meeting them up here. And plus, just the Native American community in general in Minneapolis is one of the largest in the country. So you are, again, in the right place. Right. I think so. (laughs) Well, Eddie, time has really gone by too quickly. It's just so wonderful to speak to you. I'm so grateful that you've written this wonderful book, This Indian Kid and Native American Memoir, because it's just so filled with stories, for one, but encouragement and just an appreciation of life and for life. So I'm so grateful that we've had a chance to talk about it. So the book is pretty freshly out and available at all of our favorite book sources, true? Yes, all your favorite bookstores, and uh, there in Seattle, it's available at Elliott Bay. I would just contact your local bookstore or go online. And to follow you and know what you're up to, how shall we do that? Facebook or Instagram. And just with your name, correct? Yes, Eddie Chukwe. It's spelled like chocolate, only the O's are used in my name. Chocolate is C-H-O-C-O-L-A-T-E, and Chukwe is C-H-U-C-U-L-A-T-E. So that is Creek language. Is that right? Chukalate is actually Cherokee. So that my dad was Cherokee, my mom's Creek. So that's a fairly common uh, people know that name in northeastern Oklahoma for sure, especially for Cherokee. In fact, my uh, grandpa, who I'm named after, they lived in Kirtland, Washington for a while. But you haven't made your way here yet. I've visited Seattle, yeah. Well, good. I hope it was a good experience. It was. Well, this has been wonderful. I really appreciate your work. I appreciate you just in general, Eddie Chukalate. It's been wonderful to spend this time with you. Thank you so greatly. Thank you, Kate.